Back-to-back losses to the Blues could be the final blow to the Canucks playoff dreams. Welcome to the Canucks Hour. Live from Rogers Arena, I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, 13 games remaining in the Canucks season, but last night felt like uh, an inflection point of some sort, and not just because of what happened in the game as they lose to St. Louis Blues in regulation for the second straight game, but also what happened everywhere else around the NHL. And I think even the most optimistic and hopeful of fans and observers would have a very hard time buying into the Canucks' playoff chances at this point. It was a devastating night, and yet, you know, we have to remember the context here, right? We've always been talking about a long-shot playoff race. So, you know, to go with, and and Faber, I'm going to give you a heads-up to prepare the bell, your favorite bell, to go with Dom LeCision's model. There we go. We see that the Canucks fell from 10% to 3% as a result of the loss last night. Now, when you're really in a playoff race, when you're really in the thick of it, like the Canucks were, for example, in 2019-20, they had a loss against the Arizona Coyotes right before the season halted that dinged their playoff odds 26%. Right? That's almost four times the amount that their playoff odds were dinged last night. Yes, it was a worst-case scenario. Yes, it puts this team... In, in a spot where I don't think there's a ton of suspense over the balance of the season. But what they lost was not good chances. <laughs> they, they were always a long shot. And if they'd won, because Dallas has their fate kind of in their own hands, because Vegas won. Vegas won, Winnipeg won, three-point game between Edmonton and L.A. <laughs> I, I mean, a total nightmare. Total literally nightmare. worst-case scenario. But But this was never, like, this playoff chase was always remote. And the Canucks' bed was was basically made in the nine games previous where they were, you know, I mean, they, going into last night, there were three, four, and three. In their last ten. Over their last nine games going into last night. Oh, sorry, I gave you ten. So three, four, three, four and three. Three, four, and two. But I think, yeah, I think they were even three, four, and three. So it, not, Yeah. So anyway, the point being that their bed had already basically been made, and this was just sleeping in it. You know, that they, they never got over the hump in this playoff race. They had opportunities to. That Anaheim loss that, that you've pointed to. The Detroit loss looms large. The the Buffalo Sabres loss looms large. And then even though they had valiant efforts on that last road trip against the Abs, against the Wild, against the uh, Dallas Stars, you know, it, it, this was always managing decline as opposed to really getting into the center of the playoff race somewhere they never got to. They just never got to. Um, their playoff odds will have peaked at 26% short of them reeling off a, a run of 10 straight wins here. And, you know, I think it's important to note while we look at and begin to pivot to, to postmortems, which are premature, it should be said. This team is not mathematically eliminated. They could still get to 99 points if they win out. There are There is still life here, and until they're eliminated mathematically, I think we do have to treat the games like they matter the, to some the, extent. Uh, but the, the obituary is on file, but it's not being published correct, yet. Correct, exactly. It's too early for that. This team's been left for dead too many times this season to do it again prematurely, right? But looking at the reality of the situation is, and as we begin to pivot to what went wrong, I think item one, the headline has to be that this team never got close. They never 
exceeded a one in four shot of making the playoffs at any point this season. They never got close, and and the hill was too too steep a climb. They performed admirably, but I think in the big picture analysis, you have to say the best thing that this club did under Bruce Boudreau was not give themselves a realistic shot at playing in the in the playoffs because that never occurred. The best thing that happened was that they got to play a run of. 30 games that mattered an awful lot more than we thought they would at any point in November and December, and as a result, gave new management an opportunity to evaluate how this team reacts in pressure situations. And we saw a mixed bag. We saw an inconsistent group, a group that can put together a scintillating, complete 60-minute performance at elevation in Denver, and then also do what they did last night, where, you know, I mean, Alex Chason, that was a great play by Brad Richardson to set up that goal. But they couldn't hold that lead. And it was sort of a goofy goal against them. Those happen. No big deal. The, then then the Blues completely took over the second period. If we're being totally honest, like there was the Perron backhand chance. There was just a rush of chances, both late in the first for the St. Louis Blues. And then they had 11 straight shots leading up to the Pedersen out of nowhere beautiful goal that he scored against the grain to make it 2-1. The Blues had taken over that game by the time Pedersen gave them a lead. And then, you know, there's the giveaway, but there's three guys back. People were making way too big a deal about the Pedersen giveaway there. That was one of his best games of the season. Um, That's going to happen when you're trying things. I want Pedersen to cut into the middle of the ice more. Like, I want that on the power play more. I don't want him to be discouraged from doing that. He wasn't being irresponsible in that moment. And the other thing I'd add is... The players that usually occupy the middle, Bo Horvat in particular, was gone. Yeah. So, so you've sort of got him out of sorts a little bit from what he's used to. Uh, there's three guys back. That shouldn't have been a, a breakaway chance. The really big issue is that power play one was still on the ice 75 seconds into the opportunity, whereas the Blues had cleared the zone and, and were fresh, and it showed when Robert Thomas became the first guy I've ever seen skate away from Quinn Hughes and gain a step, right? Quinn Hughes was tired. That's what happened. And then, of course, Ryan O'Reilly scores the icer, the power play goal, uh, the the 3-2 goal, and then that doesn't even stand up as the game winner because the Canucks, it took them 55 minutes to to really show the type of urgency they needed. But you look at that game as a whole, and the Canucks played really poorly. They generated nothing offensively. The Blues took it to them when the game was in doubt. And by the time the Canucks mustered a push, they were down two. And, you know, yeah, they should have gotten a power play opportunity late. Connor Garland 100% drew a penalty, and it is preposterous that this league functions in a way where a, where a clear penalty late that, that costs you a possession isn't, right. an, isn't but, a call every time out. And it's seen as, oh, we don't want to influence the game, as if by ignoring penalties you're not well, influencing as, the game. As if allowing a player to get high-sticked in a way that costs them possession while their team is pressing isn't a significant influence on the outcome. Preposterous, ridiculous, absurd. I can't say enough about how uh, how annoying it should be, and everyone who was watching that game should be at the fact that not only was it not called, but you knew it wasn't going to be called, and it's never called. It's, it's preposterous. But it doesn't change the fact that the Canucks were not nearly good enough last night. They were not nearly good enough on Monday in St. Louis. They've not been nearly good enough this season. And so they're in a position where you look through – the last 10 games and they're at a 45.2% expected goals rate over the that's so far from being good enough and they've still got elite goaltending over that stretch like I know people point to the Demko first goal against and they're like that's one of those strange goals he's been 
Demko's been incredible all year. He was great last night. That robbery off Tarasenko. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. Like, he made multiple outrageously good saves. You, It's actually kind of hard to, to miss the playoffs with goaltending as good as the Canucks have got. And for me, that's really what speaks to the distance that this team, team still has to travel. Like, it is... They're, they are poised to, should these numbers hold, be the first team in 12 years to miss the playoffs with the best goaltending at 5-on-5 five five in the league. And it's a very important thing to keep in context because so many of the chances that this team has surrendered and the defensive issues remain their biggest problem for me, particularly over the course of the last month of hockey. Even when they've won, they've won while surrendering just bucket loads of, of great A's. Um, you, the fact that their save percentage has allowed them to run downhill all season has has the risk is that that obscures the extent to which this roster is so flawed and needs significant change and and I think we have to keep that in the front of our minds particularly as we watch this team not play out the string but as we watch the lights dim on their realistic playoff chances here um last night felt a little bit like watching the team that we saw in the first part of the season, to be honest. Because, yeah, the November Canucks, I yes, agree. Yes, because it's not as if they were never on the puck, right? It's not as if they came, the Blues came in and just never gave the Canucks a sniff at even having the puck or gaining the zone. The Canucks, you know, they had shots, and in terms of the shooting metrics and the shot attempts at 5-on-5, five five, pretty even with the Blues, actually. But if you look at legitimate scoring chances... The Blues completely outclassed them. The Blues did a fantastic job of, like I wrote in my notes, the Blues really bluesed it up in that game. <laughs> like they just did a fantastic job of clogging up the middle, you know, taking away space. That was not a pretty or aesthetically pleasing game for pretty much any uh, sustained stretch. And the Canucks just couldn't generate enough high danger scoring chances. They couldn't get to the dangerous areas of the ice. So hey, great, you have decent puck possession, but it didn't matter for anything. And that was one of the big stories. Early in this season when Travis Green was still coaching the team, and I thought it kind of came back last night. And on top of that, another one of the issues from early in the season was the special teams battle. And again, the special teams battle killed them. They go up, shorthanded goal against, power play goal, and the Blues power play. We've talked about how dangerous it was, and I thought they were clinical in that moment. And again, it just kind of showed you the gap between the Canucks and even not even a top tier contender, but just a solid playoff team like the blues where they knew exactly what they had to do to win that game. They knew exactly the way they had to play and the Canucks just didn't have an answer for it. The Canucks didn't have a, a plan a that they could go to, to break the blues down and make them uncomfortable. The blues, they were, I felt even when they were losing that game, they were comfortable pretty much the entire game until arguably the last five minutes. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, the Blues, you're right. They don't have the top gear of a contending team this season, in my opinion. And I thought you saw that a little bit with the way that they played against the Canucks. Like, you can you can generate chances against that team, yeah. especially at 5-on-5, five five, for sure. And I thought last night they looked slow yes. in addition to that. And and by the way, I want to point this out. I'm We're only, what? 18 months removed from watching Ryan O'Reilly steal everybody's lunch money in the bubble, right? Roughly. Mm -hmm. And yet you look at how he played last night, and I know he got that big goal, and he still played well, and he made some really nice plays. Like the clearance that he made late was the type of play that only Ryan O'Reilly can make. He might be the hardest guy on his stick in hockey. But he's 31, and he looked 31 last night. And just keep that in your mind's eye. Like, over 18 months, he's gone from 
destroyer of worlds to excellent middle six defensive center. Right? Like, age is so cruel in a young man's game. And that's something that we really need to keep in mind and ground because it feels like every night the Canucks play, they play somebody who who fits that profile just as we're discussing the possibility of what a J.T. Miller extension would look like. And and for me, it's just cautionary tale after cautionary tale in every game this team seems to play in. So I, I thought there was another one of those last night. But the Blues, despite not having a championship gear, in my opinion, like that is more than anything else for me, a really well-constructed team, right? I mean, you think about that blue line, right? You think about Pareko, you think about Falk, you think about Letty. They didn't even have Tori Krug, and they didn't even have their best offensive player in Jordan Cairo in the lineup last night. It didn't really matter. They've got three really good lines, even though they've got guys like that Torpchenko kid who was playing up into their top nine. They have a fourth line that's got some speed and can do some damage and ultimately scored the game-winning goal. Um, they've just got a ton of depth, professionalism, two-way IQ. I thought Justin Falk might have been the best player on the ice last night. Something I haven't said very many times. Like, I'm not a huge Justin Falk fan, but I thought he was f- fantastic. And, and and when I think about some of the games I've seen this team play, this Canucks team play over the past little while, you know, as good as Quinn Hughes has often been, it's contributions, it's like the way that Justin Falk was directing traffic. There was that shift early in the third where he sort of broke in on the rush and had that chance and then the puck kind of goes the other way and he's the guy that breaks it up in the neutral zone and then he shoots it in and just goes for a change and it's like that sort of signal caller directing traffic type game I think we saw that from Washington Washington had a couple of players who played that type of game and and really I thought stymied Vancouver with with their style of play Uh, I'm thinking about Nick Jensen I'm thinking about Dmitry Orlov certainly when we saw Victor Hedman play the Canucks we saw it and and those are the types of performances like Quinn Hughes is a one-man breakout machine and I think he's played really well but Outside of that, there's just not the same type of two-way IQ and, and, and active, like, holding mid-quality problem-solving in terms of directing traffic from this Canucks blue line. I think that's a big reason why they surrender too many chances. I think that's a big reason why they can't find a plan B when their four-check's not feeding their five-on-five offense. And, I mean, I think you can't understate the magnitude of the task at hand in terms of upgrading what Vancouver's got on the back end. Like, I think it's a multi-year project, and that's not to say that the team can't be good. Better next year, yeah. Or, or Well, I don't know about next year, but can't well, be better as the, as they're, you know, renovating. Sure. But I do think that they – I do think you need to be very clear-eyed about what you need on the back end, and it's like two or three guys who are, you know, first of all, a 1-2 type for the right side, then a 3-4 type for the right side. Mm-hmm. Like those are the those are the main two ones, and then I, I think an additional an additional sort of depth guy uh, on the left side who's a stud PK guy. Um, those are like the three needs for me on the uh, on the defensive side of the puck, and that's a lot of needs. I don't think you can solve that in a year or two. I think that's a multi year project that this organization is going to have to that this new hockey operations leadership group is going to have to undertake, and they're going to have to do it while their top six gets more expensive. You know, with Besser expiring this year, and then Horvat and Miller the year after that, and then Pedersen the year after that. And and it just sort of gets to something else that kind of bugged me about last night's game. Other than that chase on chance, I can't really think of a chance that the Canucks generated from the dirty areas of the ice. I didn't feel like they paid a consistent price in that game last night. Bruce Boudreaux talked about the lack of size on the team. Uh, and so it's like, we've talked about this team having 
too little size, having too, too little, little speed, speed, having too little skill, not enough depth, ha- having too little defensive IQ. You know, it's like other than the goalie, there's a lot of gaps. Other than the goalie and some elite skill on the power play, like what do you got? Yeah, and that's and that's what we've meant when we've talked about poorly constructed. I, I just think it's all coming to bear. It's all it's all apparent and. As much as the run has been fun and fans have wanted to buy into it, and, and, I, and I hope they have, and I hope they've enjoyed it, and there's been some fun nights out at the rink over the course of this run, um, you know, I still think it's really important to remember and keep in mind the distance that this club still has to travel, especially because I think it can be deceptive to look at just the Boudreaux-era winning percentage and say that that's a new level for a team that, you know, even while they've amassed it, they've done it in an inconsistent way on the back of two really, really successful spurts. And when the leverage has amped up, I think has been found severely wanting over the course of the past two and a half weeks. Well, and just to your point about not paying the price, not getting to the dirty areas, I mean, for the first 55 minutes of that game, did that feel like a team that was fighting for to keep, to keep its season alive? It didn't, no. right? And th- that's not to attack the team's effort per se, because look, I understand the other team's trying to slow you down, the other team has agency in that, but they, they didn't find a way to ratchet up the intensity level, ratchet up the desperation, and take the game to the Blues again until the final five minutes when the crowd really got going and, and really tried to push them to it. And, you know, your point about not being kind of swept up by the team's point percentage under Boudreaux, I think that especially becomes clear because, as I was saying, that team and that game we saw last night looked a lot like some of the games we saw early in the season before Bruce Boudreaux came here, uh, took over behind the bench, right? So you are seeing some commonalities pop up, some similarities between how they're playing right now over the last 10 or 11 games and how are they how they were playing at the beginning of the season. And I think even just, you know, zero in on that game last night and they get the kind of game-breaking moment from Elias Pettersson where it kind of falls into his lap and he picks his spot, great shot, snipe, you don't apologize for that because that's why you have players like Elias Pettersson. But beyond that and the goaltending, there's not that kind of consistent depth and skill and ability to control the game that good teams rely on to rack up wins over and over and over. You're relying on those moments, and that's great. That's awesome to have the players that can deliver you those moments, but you need to have something more. And that, look, that was kind of my read on the team going into the season, right? It was the, the goaltending, high-end skill, but questions about the depth, and I think it's still a pretty reasonable read to have on this team uh, as we near the end of the season as well. I want to get to a text. Honest question, how many perfectly crafted teams are there in the NHL? I don't think there's such a thing as a no. perfect team in the cap era, but how many well-constructed teams are there in the NHL? I think there's a fair a few. I think there's a fair few. Uh, I'd, certainly the seven or eight teams that I think have a real shot at winning this year, you know, you're call, like – you have you have their contenders tier for me the real contenders tier, um, which is four or five teams large. Uh, you can maybe your mileage might vary on a few of them, and I'll probably dock those down so that we can kind of reach a consensus. But certainly, I would say the Carolina Hurricanes are an exceptionally well constructed team. For me, that's the best defensive team in hockey. Um, I think you can say the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, you have to say yes. the Colorado Avalanche are exceptionally well constructed. Um, I think you'd say the Calgary Flames are very well constructed. I would have the Flames in there. I, would you have the Florida I, here's, here's what I – yeah. I was, so it would be Carolina, Colorado, Calgary, uh, Florida, Tampa for me. That's, yeah. that, okay. that, that, that's my top five. And I'd, I'd quibble with Tampa's uh, 
I'd quibble with Tampa's inclusion because I don't like their bottom six speed. So they'd I'd dock them down into the next tier where you've got the teams that are slightly flawed but still very well constructed and still could win it all, in my opinion. And that's your Boston's, yes. your Toronto's, yeah, your Tampa Bay's, your Pittsburgh's, Minnesota. I probably put Minnesota in there now. Yeah, Minnesota's fringe on that tier for me, but that's a quibble. Yeah, I put Minnesota there. And then and then you get into sort of the next tier down, which for me still includes Vegas, even though they might miss the playoffs. Oh, sure. And and it probably includes the Rangers, even though they're mostly a goalie. And it probably includes Connor McDavid's Edmonton Oilers yeah. because they have Connor McDavid, who <laughs> hit 100 points for the fifth time uh, for the fifth consecutive season. Last I would probably year. have the Blues in that tier, to be honest. As well, I wouldn't. The Blues for me are one layer down with your Nashville's, your Dallas's, and your Washingtons. But um, you know, but they're there. I mean, they're they're in that. Anyway, I don't think we've mentioned a team there like until we get to Edmonton Nashville so but basically we've gone through almost half the league yeah and I think only in that sort of last little tier Nashville Ed, uh, St. Louis Edmonton do we start to get into teams where you could quibble with the construction I would of the say roster? I would say St. Louis is a better constructed team than Edmonton For but sure. Edmonton's a better team. And, you know what I mean? Because they have Connor McDavid only on dry side. I'd say the same of the New York Rangers. The Rangers, yes. I think, have a chance to beat um, a lot more a lot more teams, in my view, than the same. Like, I'd, yeah. I like the Rangers more than I like the Blues, but I but it's because it's just sturdy. You, you can overcome a certain degree of having, like, less than ideal roster construction with sheer talent. Like, that's what we see in Edmonton. We see it night totally. after night after yes. night in Edmonton, but they're, first of all, I mean, they have two top five players in the league, right, that allows them to overcome that, and there's a limit to how much you can overcome it. As we've like, seen. Like, no one thinks of them as legit Stanley Cup contenders, For despite having those players. And the conversation around them is constantly about what do they need to add, what do they need to add to get there. And I think we need to frame the conversation around this Canucks team similarly, right? We know what this team has in Demko. What do they need to add to get there? Well, they need to add a lot more defensive talent. They need to add a lot more hockey IQ, like two-way hockey IQ, both on the blue line and up front. You need to grab, like, the bottom six today at practice, they skated a line with Lamico, Dickinson, and Chason, and a fourth line with uh, Podkolzin, and I can't even think of the uh, other Paul two. Podkolzin, Richardson, Lockwood. Okay. Does that scream well-constructed to you? And I know that this team is lacking, like, is... is has some injuries at the moment. Hoaglander, Highmore, the Tyler Mott trade. And look, that certainly hurts. But the Blues were without Cairo and, also, and crew. Like Hoaglander was getting has been scratched. Totally. Right? totally. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I it's not as if he's a top six no, fixture they're, they're here. Bottom six players. Like yeah. you can't you can't point to bottom six players as the reason that you're going to miss. Um, you know, the Blues found ways to get things out of McEachern and and Torpchenko and on and on. Like. The Canucks have to be able to do something similar. This is another year going into the final stretch with a bottom six that looks sub-NHL quality. And and that's been the story of, what, every five or six seasons? Um, that's kind of what the past management group seemed to habitually construct. That's what this team needs to kind of break out of, among other things. And so we're sort of sitting here with the playoff chase having sort of faded... It's not over, but it's faded significantly. And, you know, it's it's time to look ahead to some extent, but it's also time to take stock of exactly what we've seen, particularly because this team is so hard to see clearly. And I think we can get into that a little bit more, not just on the other side of the break, yeah. but 
in the weeks to come. Yes, well, that's going to be the fascinating part of these final 13 games is what to what degree will it and should it maybe also kind of change or solidify how anyone perceives this team. And I do think, the again, to kind of echo what I was saying earlier, the fact that you're seeing some of the same issues crop up that we saw under Green in the first 25 games of this season, that's concerning because it suggests that the coaching change has not uh, you know, completely revamped what this team looks like and what the kind of results they're going to consistently rack up. More to come on that. We'll read some of your texts as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, it's the Canucks Hour. Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more coming up. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. It's not over, but it's faded significantly. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance. Uh, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come. With fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, uh, visit avenuemachinery.ca. <laughs> this unsigned text, though, comes in. Uh, the Canucks Hour, sponsored by Tankathon.com, your resource for a glimmer of hope on a good lottery pick. <laughs> it's almost that season, Drancer. It's no, almost it's, uh, it's almost it's lottery simulation it's time. It's too late. There, there's no there's no chance. There's no chance. Like, First of all, you're, only, you're restricted. You can only move up a certain number of spots yeah, now. Know, know. So you can't go all the way. And the Canucks aren't going to get into the into the Shane Wright stakes. They not, are not. not. Not with how well they perform, not with how soft their schedule is the rest of the way. No chance. They are not. And uh, so it's going to be... 16. It's going to be learn about 15. guys in uh, the 10 to 20 range of the draft season. Well, and, That's what it's going to be. And my favorite is dream about one guy yeah. who, who might fall, and then they're going to go four, yes. right? Like the Mason McTavish thing. The Mason McTavish impact, right? Where it's like, McTavish, he could be available at 10. Or uh, or he could go third. Zegris <laughs> going at nine, right? Right, yeah. Woo! Well, and then, and then, you know, there are guys who fall. I mean, Chikorin is a good example, too. He was thought to be in, the con- in contention for... Uh, Tavo Teravainen is one that I remember. Tavo Teravainen was seen as an elite player, and Philip Forsberg's another. And and look, those guys all panned out. They're all really good. Like sometimes when a guy falls, the the industry is wrong, and sometimes when a guy falls, you pick Jordan Trader and think it's a steal. Wow, Jordan Trader out here catching strays. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I'm just it's how it goes. It's how <laughs> it goes. I mean, I remember, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the 2013 NHL entry draft where the Canucks traded Corey Schneider and selected Bo Horvat, who was seen as a giant reach at nine. Great pick. And then got Hunter Shinkaruk, 23, who was seen as a giant steal. Yes. How did he fall? Right. And it's like, you know, so uh, conventional wisdom on draft day, you got to be careful. I remember sitting there watching the 2013 draft and they make the trade, they get the ninth overall pick, and immediately. They're going to take Valerie Nechuskin. Let's go. Let's go. He fell to them. He was supposed to go top three. They're going to take him. Of course they don't. Now, it took a few years. He's developed into a fantastic player himself after some some bumps in the road. Uh, And he was also awesome right out the gate. I mean, there was definitely a moment where I thought the Canucks had screwed that up. There's absolutely a moment where I thought they'd screw that up. The moment it happened, I thought they did. Me too. It's turned out pretty well for the Canucks, so I I got that one wrong. But yeah, that that was my instant reaction. I also want to read, well, first of all, Bruce Boudreau just spoke. And uh, our Bren- our own Brendan Bachelor, friend of the show, although we've never had him on, yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't like me, 
<laughs> I'm just kidding. Me and Batch get along really well. Um, I think I've done an okay job, Boudreaux said when asked if he's earned an extension. It's a tough question. I want to coach Vancouver forever, and I really like Vancouver, so I guess that answers the question. If I was to say one thing that I'd like to see from the organization before the season is out, extend Boudreaux. Don't drag this out again. One thing... No, look, your mileage may vary on Boudreaux, right? I don't think it does in this market. Boudreaux is seen no. as, as our Lord and Savior. I think we have like one regular angry at Boudreaux texter, but other than that, it's pretty much <laughs> unanimous. It's pretty much unanimous. But I think a reasonable discussion can point to some things that haven't necessarily gone as well under Boudreaux as perhaps you might like. I mean, you could point out the declining usage of younger players, right? That That is true. Boudreaux seems to prefer veterans. I think the... Leash given to younger players has been far shorter under Boudreaux than it was under Travis Green. I think you can point to the matchup discipline. Boudreaux tends to roll lines a little bit more freely, with with far less discipline than Green did in terms of loading the dice. Um, You can point to some stuff like that, fine, whatever. But the fact is is that what Boudreaux's accomplished here is nothing short of remarkable. You you do not want, in my opinion, to go into the offseason with question marks looming. And you cannot keep doing something that this organization has made a hash of consistently over the last five years, which is letting people work their lame duck seasons. You know, do not at any point put Boudreaux over the balance of the season even, right? Like, there's a team option, we know that, on Boudreaux's second year. So over the balance of the season, do you want Boudreaux thinking about what will help me win the most games next year and what will help this organization win the most games in the next three years? Do you want to structure him so that he's incentivized to think long term or do you want him to spend the next 13 games coaching for his next job because for me it's very clear you want him to feel free to play Rathbone to try things on the on the power play to keep Lockwood's minutes up to maybe give him a look in the in the top you know nine even get Pod Coles in some reps on the power play get All some Pod Coles in, get Pod Coles in some reps on a line with Pedersen like see if he can play a heavy press role you want your middle managers, which is essentially what a head coach and a GM are within an organization, you want them thinking about, you want their interests aligned with that of the organization. That's best practice in any business you run, in hockey too, and it's something that this organization has not gotten right in five years. I mean, since the JT Miller trade was made before Benning was extended, it's been a consistent mess in terms of just aligning the interests of your key decision makers with that of the organization. Extend Boudreaux before the end of the season. Like, put this to rest. There's no question that he's earned the right to have a full year coaching this team. And I'd like to see it. I'd like to see that happen. I think I think if you can do it before the end of the season, you know, maybe it's two more years in addition to the one you've already negotiated, so that keeps him in for, you know... Then, then all of a sudden, Boudreaux's incentivized to think long-term and to think about next season and some of the player decisions that he makes, certainly after the club is eliminated. That's what I want to see. It, it's just, you just think about it from kind of a worst-case, best-case situation. Like, what's the worst-case scenario if you do extend Bruce Boudreaux, right? Because you're not t- you're not talking about giving him a five-year extension. Like, realistically, that's not going to happen. It's going to be, as you said, probably two years on top of uh, the team option for next year. So that's, you know, that's term, but it's not crazy long-term where you're committing to him years and years down the road. So really, what's the downside of doing that? And on the flip side, what's the best case scenario if you decide to move on from this summer, right? Like, are you are you going to land the perfect, oh my gosh, this guy's incredible and we got him as his first NHL job? Unless you think you're going to do that, 
the logic of moving on from him doesn't make a ton of sense for me. And I, and I know we've brought it up on the show as a possibility because of, you know, what Patrick Albion had to say when he spoke after the trade deadline. But And and some of the commentary that management has had about the structure, about the practice habits. You know, I, I mean, if you want to interpret those as signs that perhaps management isn't enamored with the way that this team is run under Boudreaux, um, I, think, I think there's... I, I'm not going to say you're wrong to do it. You know what I mean? Like, there's enough there that I wonder. So I, I don't think a fan is wrong to say, hey, what does that mean? How do I interpret that? You know, it is confusing. It is hard to interpret. I think there is are breadcrumbs that you can, you know, pick up if you want to walk down that path and, and sort of wonder about Boudreaux's future. But for me, it should be a relatively straightforward decision. This guy gets results. This guy's gotten yeah. results here. Uh, let's. I, I'd love to see what it looks like with him getting a full season in Vancouver. It, it's just, as I said, it's hard to see the upside from uh, from going the other way on that one. I want to read a text that came in from Keith, the water guy, who said, you guys criticize this team like they're a top team that should make the playoffs. Criticize them as the team they are, a bad team who is fighting for a playoff spot. And Keith, if the Canucks were in a situation where this season had been about looking to the future, right? Where, where you hadn't done the Oliver ekman Larson trade and you were hurtling some of the bad money that you had on the books and you'd made value bets and had reams of cap flexibility coming next season, I would discuss the team through that prism. Mm-hmm. Here's what you have to remember about the roster that, you know, right now, having played 69 nice games, sits, you know, at 3% playoff odds per Dom decision. You want to hit the bell, Faber, before I move on? Ring that bell. Oh, he's going to leave you hanging. Bing. Wow. Favorite, right, favorite, he's fed him. up of taking orders on the bell. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Go. There we go, bud. Um, anyway, they sit four points out of the second, no, five, five points, points out, out of the second wild card spot, but with multiple teams between them and that who also have games in hand, including the Dallas Stars, who have four games in hand and are four points ahead. It's grim. Okay? In order to assemble this team, the Canucks have traded consecutive first-round picks, right? They've traded their second-round pick this upcoming season. Uh, they traded their third-round pick last year in service of, of Jason Dickinson. Uh, the year prior, they also traded their second-round pick to add Tyler Toffoli to the mix and then allowed him to walk in unrestricted for agency. Uh, they have locked up a significant heap of their future cap flexibility chasing top UFAs, including Tyler Myers, but also acquiring and then and then signing, in Garland's case, uh, players like Oliver ekman Larson and Garland. Those are deals that last five years at the at the short end, which is which is Garland. Oliver ekman Larson has six years remaining. This team is in a window right now, and that window has resulted honestly ever since the J.T. Miller trade was made. The moment you made that J.T. Miller trade, you locked yourself into a contention window that sort of lapsed with the entry-level deals of Hughes and Pedersen and really required the team to be on the rise in 2019-20, mission accomplished, in 2021, eh, and this season, eh, and they actually doubled down on this season Mm -hmm. even as Pedersen and Hughes got significantly more expensive, right? Became almost, you know, 10 times more expensive when you look at their combined ELCs at 1.6 versus where they're at now, which is, you know, 14 plus million, 15 million combined. So it's very important to remember that when we're discussing this team and discussing them in the context of being a top team, this is a team that took an all-in shot on this season. That's why we're holding them 
to an expectation level commensurate well, with a team that's pushed chips into the middle to construct this team. That yeah, they play better under Boudreaux. They're twelfth in the NHL in point percentage under Boudreaux. Even by just their Boudreaux era performance, they're not elite. Yeah. They're not elite. And this market went through five, six years of really tough rebuilding hockey. Constantly picking in the top ten, watching Chapu on the power play in service of constructing this window that's resulted in one second round appearance, a seventh place finish in the all Canadian division, and this season, which, you know, yeah, they, they rallied great, but it also was functionally over by mid November. The other thing I'll say is, you know, to keep It's not good enough, Jamie. To keep the water guys point, like judge them as a bubble playoff team. Well, if you're a bubble no. playoff, no, no. But hold on, if you're I a bubble won't. playoff team and you go and you go three, five, and two in a crucial ten game stretch, you're going to get criticized. Like no, that's I'm that's kidding. bad for a bubble playoff team too. They they came to the crux of their season with a chance to do one last hail mary and turn it around, and they weren't able to do it. And yeah. I, I don't know what you want us to say. Like three, five, and two in your last ten when you're trying to go in a desperation push for the playoffs is not good. It, it's not good no matter what. You know, year of the rebuild or year of building or stage of building that you're in as a team. So that, that's that. And now we can talk about the future and find reasons for optimism, all that. And we had another text comes in that said, uh, hey, let's look at some positive guys. Well, I actually do think there are some positives about this team's situation going forward. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to bring up from last night was the performance of Elias Pettersson. Uh, scores two goals, as we talked about, probably got too much flack for the turnover that goes the other way and leads to a goal. And I think it's very fair. I, I don't think it's impossible or contradictory or anything like that to look at how the team has performed this season and point out that, you know, there are some significant, significant flaws on this roster that need to be fixed going forward, while also being optimistic about some of the pieces that they have in place. And I think Elias Pettersson is near the top of that list. Now, I know he struggled early in the season, but... We're going on, what, a stretch of 30-plus games now where he's been a point-per-game Elias Pettersson having an impact as a two-way player, playing on the penalty kill, doing good things on the power play. There are reasons to be optimistic, and you just have to be able to kind of keep both ideas in your head at once, right? And I don't think it is impossible to do so, to recognize that they have some really important building blocks in place, guys like Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko, while also acknowledging that the task of surrounding those players with the kind of depth and the kind of two-way players that they need further down the roster is going to be very difficult. But I I do want to talk about Elias Pettersson a little more specifically, because for all of the talk about you know, what are they going to do with JT Miller? What are they going to do with Brock Besser? What are they going to do with Connor Garland? How are they going to reshape the defense? As we watch these final 13 games, I just keep coming back to the fact that all of those conversations, as important as they are, as significantly as they are going to shape the direction of this team, they're still kind of secondary to what does Elias Patterson's peak look like ultimately, right? And I am still very firmly in the camp of Elias Pettersson can be a cornerstone player on a championship team, right? Elias Pettersson can be, you know, we were talking about well-constructed teams. Elias Pettersson can be the number one center on a very well-constructed team that has a shot to win the Stanley Cup. But it's still kind of the number one storyline that Bears watching is when does he take, or what does the next step of his career look like? And we're not going to get the answer to that in these final 13 games, right? We're really not going to start to get the answer to that until next season, right, when we see what he's done over the summer, see how he's improved, what he looks like, potentially with a new mix around him. 
but I was just struck seeing him, you know, be the best player for the Canucks last night, score those two goals, one of them that's created out of nothing. He is still the kind of, you know, to steal one of your favorite words, Drancer, he still might be the fundamental storyline for this team going forward, uh, or at least one of the fundamental storylines uh, going the, going forward for this team, despite all of the other questions that they have to answer. Yeah. So when we look back at what Elias Pettersson did this year, the, the, the issue is, is that the start means that his overall impact will not have been elite this season. He did not have an elite season this year. He did not make an elite impact on the Canucks. And that's in the sum of his parts, right? There's been 30 games where he's had elite impact, but there's been 30 games where his impact was far from elite. It was like middle six, right? So mm-hmm. it's a tough season to evaluate because the sum of it results in him having roughly a first line, like the impact of a low-end first liner. That's good. That's totally fine. This team will go nowhere if Elias Pettersson is... Speak. If Elias Pettersson, if Elias Pettersson is a first line quality player, then he's the cadre of your rebuild, and you need to go get a couple franchise pieces. Mm-hmm. And if this organization is there, then that is a very big problem. Then then you need to take on some pain in the short term. That's so the thing. so we, it's a vital question. I mean, I believe in Pettersson as being more than that, but. If he's not your franchise, then you have to go get a franchise player, and the only way to get a franchise player is to suck. Like, to suck more than you probably ever will with Demko in the net. We're going to... We're going to debate... (laughs) We're going to debate what should they do with JT Miller. What should they do with Brock Besser. It doesn't matter what decisions you make on those players unless Elias Pettersson is better than just a first-line player, right? Unless he's yep. legitimately a tier, at least a tier above that. It doesn't matter if you sign JT Miller or trade JT Miller unless you get that next evolution from Elias Pettersson. Here's the good news. I want to I want to give some good news to our listening audience. Some, something that I know everyone tunes in to, to our show for <laughs> is the good news. Elias Pettersson is, is significantly better than just being a first-line player. Now, is he a McDavid-Matthews-level franchise player? No, probably not. But can he be the best player on a team that wins the Stanley Cup? I believe yes. I believe yes, unequivocally. I think he's an elite first-line center. I think he'll be top 10 with with top 5 center in the game upside. But he wasn't that this year. And I do think there's going to need to be a a really significant commitment from him and from the organization to maximize his potential. I do think there needs to be some growing up, both in terms of his physical stature, in terms of the maturity of his game – um, although it is really mature, and, and I think he's a super responsible two-way piece. More than anything, you know, I think back to the comment that he made in the summer and the idea that, you know, he wants to play on a winning team. Pedersen is the caliber of player that how a team does will always fundamentally fall on his shoulders. What I want to see from Pedersen is that growth into the guy. The guy his teammates are scared of making a mistake from. The guy who holds everyone accountable. Uh, the guy who knows that he's the face of this team and carries himself accordingly. I do think there's steps that need to need to happen there if he's going to be that guy for this team. But in terms of his skill level, I have no no doubt in my mind that, I mean, just look at that goal he scored against the Grand last night. Like, that is a 1% play. The deflection goal off that Connor Garland floater, mm-hmm. there are like five people on the entire planet who can make that play. Uh, Pedersen does those things on a regular basis, and he's become an excellent penalty killer, and I believe that he's going to be a, a, a killer 
two APs throughout his career, and we're seeing him start to win draws at a really good clip, or were before the wrist injury sort of mm-hmm. reemerged. Um, Patterson's excellent. Patterson's the least of this team's problems, and yet he's also the guy who they need the most from. He also still, still might be the biggest question in a way. And, and I say that it, as someone who believes, yeah. who believes very strongly in his talent, in his upside. But until you see that level of impact for a whole season where he needs to get More to, that. it's always going to be a that. question, sure. But yeah. I, I also just think... Year of, after year. I also just think of the goal he scored against Dallas, right? And yep. how many players can do that and be a very good penalty killer, right? And drive play at five on five. Yeah, not many. Not many. And that's the upside he has. But... Again, until you see it consistently, and again, we're not going to get confirmation over the final 13 games, but to me, just every additional bit of positive evidence you get, huge, huge to answer that kind of overarching question. Although, again, I think it's not necessarily about the plays. It's not about the highlight. It's about the weight and the impact within the club itself, and I think figuring out how to make that environment, how to make sure that Pedersen levels up and becomes the best version of himself... To me, that's as big a task as clearing space or rebuilding the blue line or any of the sort of more tangible things we talk about management needing to figure out this offseason. Number one on your item list, how do you create an environment where Pedersen becomes the absolute apex version of who he can be? Because based on his talent, the ceiling's the limit. We will be back tomorrow. The sky's the limit. The The sky, not the ceiling. The ceiling's far too low. The sky is the limit. We will be back tomorrow. Final edition of the show on Friday. Stay tuned. The People Show. Bick Nazar, Randy Janda. Actually, no. Bick Nazar and myself on The People Show is up next on your home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650.